I'm McKinney Smith. In 2009, while going through a divorce, I decided to jump straight into entrepreneurship. In 2012, I lost my sister and asked myself, what legacy do I want to leave behind? Since then, I've become a serial entrepreneur, helping other women publish their books, produce their podcasts, and reach their big goals to walk in their greatness. I realized the importance of sharing our stories of resilience and how it can be another's guide to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. We are blessed to be a blessing. So get ready to be blessed with an inspiring testimony. Hey, Legacy Leavers, thank you for joining us on the Awaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show in the world where we have conversations with amazing women that are letting us step into their shoes. I help women to own their voice so they can create impact, prosperity, and legacy. I get inspired when I see another woman succeeding, but what interests me more is her backstory and her mindset on how she got there. So today's guest is about to bless us with her testimony, and since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. Today we have Cara Alwill. She is a mindset and business coach for women on the edge of change. She's the host of the Style Your Mind podcast and author of best-selling books, including the worldwide sensation Girl Code and her most recent, Girl on Fire. An early voice in the female-driven movement, Cara continues to be a leader in this space. She spent over 12 years in the creative space building her own brand based on her popular blog called The Champagne Diet, which has turned into nine best-selling books that have been translated in various languages around the world, a podcast with over 8 million listeners, and an international coaching practice where she works with high-earning women entrepreneurs to sharpen their mindset and elevate their lives and business. Cara has been featured in Forbes, Success, Entrepreneur, and much, much more. So please welcome to the show, Cara Alwill. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to chat with you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. I mean, I've been following you on Instagram since 2015. So, wow. Uh, (laughs) We go way back, (laughs) way, way back. (laughs) So, I'm just grateful that you agreed to come on and share your story with us. So, thank you so much. Of course, it's my pleasure. So I like to start the show with a bit of an icebreaker question. I believe as people in general, you know, when we're little kids, we have these vivid imaginations of who we want to be and what we want to do. And then society tries to limit us and put the ceiling on who we can become or our potential. Um, So I would love to know, what did you want to be when you were a little girl? (laughs) (laughs) I love this question because it's just so, it's a story my mom tells over and over again. And I think it's just so funny. I actually have a photo to go with it. So when I was like probably three, I would say, we'd go to my grandparents' house and my grandmother was like really fabulous. Like she had all these like jewels and boas and wigs and all this crazy stuff. And I would go in her bedroom and I would take out like this blonde wig and a feather boa and her giant sunglasses. And I would tell my grandfather to interview me. And my grandmother's name was Dagmar. So I would say I was Dagmar from Hollywood and I was this famous star and I would make him ask me questions. And I I always (laughs) thought that I was going to be this like star. And it was just so funny, like the things that you do. And that was kind of my first, I guess my first thing. And then from there on out, I just, I always wanted to be in business. Like I would always play like store 
or like office. I never played with like baby dolls. You know, I didn't roll like a stroller around as a little kid. I always had like a business going in my bedroom. So (laughs) definitely kind of similar to what I'm doing today. I'm not quite Dagmar from Hollywood, but I'm working on it. (laughs) Here, Cara from New York. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I love to hear that though, because, you know, sometimes women will have these, um, you know, stories of what they wanted to be as a little girl. And then they became something complete opposite because, you know, their family uh, wanted them to go down a certain route or, you know, their spouse or whoever. But I love the fact that you've always wanted to be someone who was being interviewed and in business and doing these things. And you've basically manifested that to who you are today. Yeah. I mean, I give a lot of credit to my mom. She encouraged me. We didn't have much growing up. We grew up without a lot of money. We had some challenges, but she always encouraged me to do what I wanted. Doesn't mean that she didn't have certain goals for me. Like she wanted me to finish college and I didn't want to, and I wound up dropping out. We had some, you know, some tension growing up. I think like all kids do with their parents, but ultimately like nobody was getting in the way of me doing what I wanted. (laughs) I was going to make it happen one way or the other. Okay. So Tell us how you got to where you are today. Like, I know you started out in the music industry and you've evolved, um, you know, with the uh, blog and the books and stuff. But like, I guess, give us like the Coles Notes version of your story of how you got to where you are presently. Yeah. So I did always want to be in music. I love music. It's my whole life. I always say that music is my first language. You know, that was song (laughs) lyrics were kind of like some of my first words when I was a baby. Like, I just I love music. So I knew that I wanted to work in the industry in some capacity. And while I was in high school, I actually got an internship at TVT Records, like just on my own. Like I didn't get any school credit, didn't go through the school. I just cold called them and asked them if I could come work for them, which was probably very illegal because I didn't get paid. I didn't get any credit, but I just, I wanted to soak it in. I wanted to be there so badly. And from there, I started a little music fanzine and got some internships. That was the only way I could, my allowed, you know, my mom wanted me to go to college. The only kind of negotiating factor I had was that I would be able to do some internships. So went to Hunter College here in New York, did some internships, wound up leaving school, got an opportunity at J Records to be the receptionist. And I was just willing to do anything at that point. So I took the job at the front desk. And at that point, they started training me to go work in the back with Clive Davis, who I'm sure you're familiar with. He's a huge music mogul. And (laughs) It was like such an honor to assist him and to work with him in an executive assisting capacity. And from there, I wound up working at MTV and always kind of thought I was going to get into the like the music journalism side, but quickly realized that that was paying a lot less than I was mm-hmm. making doing other things. So I kind of wound up doing that just as like a little, like a free side hustle at MTV. I took a job in advertising because it was, I was able to pay the bills And I sort of just, you know, I did things that I loved on the side. I did a lot of writing and, you know, found myself at a point in my, I guess you'll call it like a quarter life crisis or something (laughs) where I was sitting at my desk at MTV and I was like, you know, I'm in this great company and I'm, I'm happy enough. You know, my job is good enough, but I want more. I know that I, I'm just meant for more. I want a bigger life. I didn't, I felt like I had tapped out there. You know, I was just really, it's just at this point, I was in a really crappy relationship, really unhappy, really not treating my body well, you know, working long hours, eating takeout all day, like just trying to get by. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, this can't be it. There's got to be more for me. 
And at that point, I thought more was going to come in the form of like losing weight and, you know, finding a new boyfriend. Like I think we do in our 20s, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, this, this will make me feel good. It's like the sugar rush, the quick hit. Mm-hmm. And I said to one of my coworkers that I was going to go on a diet that weekend. I was like, I'm just going to go on like Atkins or Jenny Craig or whatever it was. And she looked at me and she's like, Kara, you're driving yourself crazy. Like just start taking care of your body. Start eating healthy. Start working out. Start eating like a whole foods, you know, plant-based diet, which at the time, by the way, no one was really ever talking about. But she was this like beautiful, like healthy, fit girl from Israel. She grew up eating like really healthy foods, you know, and she's like American culture and diet is so crazy and it's just Mm -hmm. so backwards. And I said, okay, like I can, I can get down with this. Like, you know, if I can look and feel like you, like, sure, let's do it. But my burning question to her was, can I still drink? (laughs) (laughs) As a 20 something, you know, girl, like working in advertising, like we're out a lot. We would go to happy hours. We'd take clients out. We'd have like these team building events. And she looked at me dead in the face, completely serious. And she's like, of course you can still drink, but you can only drink champagne. And that became the start of what I called as a very tongue in cheek name, the champagne diet. And really, ultimately, it kind of was, I guess, in a sense, a champagne diet because she explained to me the reason for that is champagne has like 90 calories in a glass. It's one of the lightest, you know, cocktails you can drink. It's it's like it's bubbly. It's refreshing. It's not too heavy. So I started this blog called The Champagne Diet. And in the blog, I really started to chronicle like this transformation that I was giving myself, that I was creating. I started to really view champagne as a metaphor Mm -hmm. for living a better life, for living fabulously, for living effervescently, for celebrating everything. And it became this kind of brand. I didn't know I was creating a brand at the time. I had no idea. And I started to drink champagne and I started to like, like whenever I would have a glass, I would, you know, raise a toast to something I was proud of that I did that day. And I really Mm. kind of created this little like lifestyle. And from there, it has just kind of evolved into what it is today, which is just so much bigger than I could have ever imagined. I love the whole idea of you just like sharing your journey or sharing as you go. Um, you know, you and I both know social media can be a place where people only share their highlight reels. You know, you don't get to go along the journey with them. Um, and I also love how you use champagne as like a metaphor and, you know, I guess dug deeper into like how it made you feel and what it meant to you. So I know that you also believe in impact over income. Like, mm-hmm. wh- where does that stem from for you? You know, growing up, kind of just looking around at what everybody was doing in the world felt really, really boring to me. I saw a lot of people who were really unfulfilled, you know, especially as I started working at MTV and I saw these salespeople just like so focused on money and, you know, selling and everything felt very shallow to me. And I I knew, I'll never forget, there was this one day where I was sitting in my office and one of the salespeople was like screaming into his phone. I was probably like on the verge of like leaving at this point. I had started the blog already. And he was like just berating the person on the other end. And I was like, oh my God, like this guy's going to give himself a heart attack, you know, and he's fighting over like money. And I thought to myself, like, I can't do this. Like, I can't be in this environment. This feels so toxic for me. So I knew with the blog and with the brand I was creating, I really wanted to focus on something that felt fulfilling to me. I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people live better because I was making changes in my life and I was living better. And I thought, you know, if I can do this and if I can get out of this toxic relationship and if I can take care of my body and if I can start doing things that light me up, I can inspire other women to do the same thing. 
Mm. So I think it was kind of like seeing what I didn't want really helped solidify and, <laughs> and crystallize what I did want in my life. And I just knew that I needed a life where I felt really inspired every day, where I got up with purpose and passion. And I, I just living any other way, I just wasn't available for that anymore. I love that. And maybe that's why I completely resonate so much with like, you know, the stuff that you post. And even when I read um, Girl on Fire, I was like, yes, girl, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But like we're, especially in the women empowerment space, there's been so many that have, I'm going to say, taken advantage of the space and made it just about income. And, you know, when, when my sister passed away in 2012 and I made that, I'm going to say, shift within myself, I looked at the legacy that I wanted to leave behind. And it was for me more about creating that impact. You know, there were so many things that I did for free and people were like, how are you doing this for free or, you know, you should be getting paid for that or whatever. But I felt so fulfilled just doing those things like that in itself was a reward for me. Well, obviously I've created areas to create income, but in your book on, I think it was chapter six, there's a chapter called Generous Girls Go Further. You share the story about the woman from Pakistan not having access to your books and, you know, how you often give away books to readers and how they become super fans. Like, can you explain to the women that are listening, like the power in that kind of generosity? Yeah. Well, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I grew up like in a single parent household. My dad was a drug addict slash drug dealer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was not in our lives um, and left when I was about eight years old. And at that point, my mom really had to like take over and she worked two jobs and she put herself through college. And we had a lot of generosity towards us growing up. And I remember like, you know, my family coming over and giving us like their old couch or my grandmother, like buying us back to school clothes, you know, like whatever she could afford. And I just remember like people really kind of stepping up and helping us. And I, I think growing up in that environment, even though it wasn't my mom's plan for us was like the biggest blessing because I mm-hmm. kind of realized like money is not everything. Money's important. And I do believe we should all be paid and paid really well for what we do. But the human spirit, you know, is so much deeper and so much more profound than we sometimes realize, you know, Mm -hmm. kindness and generosity and just really helping others around us, I think has to be, that's like the forefront of everything that I do. And I think that there's this misconception that you can't be generous and still make a ton of money and be super successful. Mm -hmm. Like the two can coexist. So for me, like knowing and really believing in karma and really believing in being a good human being, I trust and I know that it will always come back to me. And it does, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I think if more people thought that way and they, even just when you think about what you want to do, I mean, I never thought about things like, how can I make money off of this? It's always first, what do I want to do? How can I help people? What really drives me? What really lights me up? What really helps me shine? And then how can I monetize it? That should come second, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all about paying it forward. Like, you know, there's simple universal laws. You know, some people may not be into law of attraction. My personal mentor is like huge on that. So I guess that's where a lot of my influence comes from. But people don't understand like that energy that you put out there, just being giving. Like my mentor taught me, if you want to make a lot of money, then help other people to fulfill their dreams and to, for them to make money. And the fruits of your labor, like you'll, you'll see that those rewards will come to you. It's not just about yourself, you know, take the focus off of you and your ego. And how can you serve? How can you provide solutions to other people and help other people make their dreams come true? And the rewards come. 
It's true. And I think it's all about having boundaries, right? Like we're not doing, I'm not coaching people for free all day long, but if somebody Mm -hmm. wants a book that I already wrote and I can just email them a a copy of it, it costs me nothing to do that. You know, what, what am I losing? Like the $3 off of the ebook I would have made on Amazon. Whereas the impact that I could have on someone by doing something generous just goes so much further. So yeah, like setting the boundaries, knowing how much you can give without depleting yourself, I think is also a really good point to make. There's ways to help other people that really don't hurt you or drain you. So think about that, you know, think about the ways that you can give back to people where you're also still feeling like your cup is filled. Yes. I think it's great that you even just pointed out like setting those boundaries. There is a difference between being a complete people pleaser and, you know, draining yourself because you're constantly giving, 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 um, and not ever getting anything in return. Um, so I think it's definitely important that you spoke to that piece on having boundaries, which is something I'm going to say for the last year and a half, two years where I've actively put into practice. And it's uncomfortable at first because you start saying no, like, you know, you're like, oh, did I just say no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not in our nature, right? Like I think as women, we're like, we are taught, we are raised to give. We are raised like the more you give, like the, you know, the better woman you are and all these things. And it's true, but like with that caveat, right? Like mm-hmm. you can still say no. You're not a bad person for saying no to something. You're not a bad person for saying like, not this time, you know, can't make it you know, without the apology that comes after it. Yes, exactly. No is a full sentence. You know, yes. Sometimes, it, you know, we feel that we have to give an explanation because our own, um, you know, shame and guilt makes us feel like, okay, well, if I don't explain to them this whole long story of why I'm saying no, but like I said, I've gotten really comfortable using the word no. And especially during the pandemic, it's like, mm, I don't have the capacity for for that right now. Yeah. Just, yeah. So with all things, you know, even speaking of the pandemic, there's good in all things and there's bad in all things. Can you share like an experience where you've used rejection as redirection and how it's worked out for the best for you? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I always knew that I wanted to write books. Like that was something that I wanted to do as well from the time I was a little girl. Interesting Mm -hmm. how that works out, right? (laughs) Um, so I knew that I wanted to write and my blog was really a platform for me to write a book, right? When I, when I sort of started the champagne diet, I always had that in the back of my head. Like there's a story here, there's something here, something I can share with people in book form. And I started to work on my book probably like around 2009. So maybe I was like doing the blog for about a year at that point. And a couple years later, I decided that I wanted to really actively try to get a book deal. So I started to reach out to literary agents. And this stats, just for anyone listening that doesn't know this, about so to get a literary agent, you have to write what's called a query letter. And it's a letter, like an email that has to pique the interest of an agent. And then they ask you for the book or samples of the book. And then from there, they sign you. And then from there, you write a book proposal. And then the book proposal goes out to potential publishing houses. And then they quote, choose you, right? (laughs) And then you're like deemed an author and you get a book deal and all that. So 99% of query letters get rejected by agents, by the way, just so you know that. Mm -hmm. So I got, I didn't get rejected. I actually wound up landing an agent and I was so excited. I had a couple offers on the table and I wound up going with this one agent and I thought for sure I was going to get a book deal. I was like, you know, young and naive and my first literally my first rodeo <laughs> my first time around I was like this is happening you know I had this whole sex in the city fantasy in my head like Car- Carrie Bradshaw like with the book signing party and all that 
And we worked on the book proposal for like six months. And when the time came to submit to the publishing houses, I started getting rejections. So the first one rolled in, second one rolled in, third one rolled in, fourth one. And in the end, I wound up having 19 rejections from 19 different publishers. I didn't even know there were 19 publishers. (laughs) I was like, maybe there's six. I don't know. No, I've got 19 of them. And at that point, I was reading a lot by Seth Godin. I don't know if you're familiar with him. So Seth Godin is this incredible thought leader, you know, talks a lot about marketing and business and entrepreneurship. And I read a blog called by him and the blog was called reject the tyranny of being picked and pick yourself. And it was really short. Anyone that's listening now, like definitely Google it, look it up. It's really short, easy read, a couple sentences. And he talked about, you know, how times were changing. Now, mind you, this is back in like 2010, I think, probably around there. So this is a long time ago. So he's talking about Amanda Hawking, who was this author that wound up like, you know, making a million dollars a year in her Kindle books. He talked about, you know, how people are going viral on YouTube. I don't know if you remember that song by Rebecca Black, Friday. It's Friday. Yep. She went viral. You know, she made millions of dollars. And he's like, we don't need gatekeepers anymore. Like, we just don't need them. Things are changing. Things are shifting. And this is at the very forefront of, of, all of this. This is like pre-Instagram, pre-TikTok. And that blog just changed everything for me. Amazon at the time was creating a platform, was formerly called CreateSpace. And it was Mm -hmm. a platform for authors to self-publish. And it was really easy. It was no cost up front. And it was this print-on-demand model where you could just submit your book in PDF form, which anyone can do, for free to Amazon. They would print it and ship it, and you would receive royalties. And the royalties were very, very generous. It was like a 60% royalty rate, whereas publishing is like a joke. You know, it's like much much lower than that. (laughs) So I was like, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go for it. And I decided to self-publish. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anyone that had done it before. I didn't take any courses. I was just Googling. I was like on these writer forums all day trying to scrape up whatever information I could. And I published my first book. And it did pretty well. I was making like a couple hundred bucks a month off of it. And then I published two more. And I was still at MTV at the time. I was doing this all from, you know, at home and on the weekends and whenever I could sneak in some writing at my cubicle. (laughs) (laughs) And then I published my fourth book. I had left MTV at this point. And I published my fourth book. And it was a book called Girl Code. And somehow, some way, I don't know if it was just the right timing or what, but that book sold 50,000 copies in its first year wow. independently. Wow. Now another stat, like traditionally published books, so a book that with a big time publisher, it's considered a success if they sell 10,000 copies in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I had, you know, this incredible success with Girl Code and it was just, it made, everything made sense in that moment. Like I, there's a Steve Jobs quote, quote, and he's Steve Jobs quote, and he says, you can't connect the dots looking forward, but you can connect them looking back. And looking back, I realized that being rejected was like the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to step up to the plate. It forced me to learn something new and it forced me to bet on myself and and take that chance. And it was the greatest reward of my life. And I wound up actually getting a double book deal with Penguin Random House after Girl Code's success, which allowed me to have my book, you know, translated in all of these languages and around the world and in airports and bookstores and, you know, that whole there's good and bad to that whole side of it, but I don't regret any of it because it really did kind of help put me on the map and reach more women. Mm -hmm. So I think if you can, you know, while you're in it, 
being rejected is really hard. It sucks. <laughs> Nobody wants to be rejected. But I think if you can kind of lean into your faith and, you know, optimism, I always say like be a best case scenario person. Like what's the best that can come out of this? Mm-hmm. And really learn to expand the faith in yourself and and really know that you are being led in the right direction and trust. I think you'll be surprised at where you end up. I love that. Like first of all, congrats on all your success with the books, um, both self-published and traditionally published. Thank Congrats you. on, I'm going to say, staying in an industry or being consistent enough to stay in an industry to see the impact that you can make. And just congrats to betting on yourself. Thank you. I know as as women, we have a lot of self-doubt and you know we doubt our ability to do certain things or you know we may make the excuses of, you know, being a mom or wife or whatever to not do certain things. But it's so important to see other women that are betting on themselves because it inspires those that are watching to see what is possible and gives them, you know, the the motivation and the vision um, that it is possible to do that for themselves. Yeah, exactly. I always say like, if you, you know, if you have trouble doing it for you, just think about who you're impacting, right? Like mm-hmm. think about all of the people that will be drawn to your work, impacted by your work, you never know where something's going to end up. You just like, I think that's the most exciting thing about taking a chance on yourself and creating things in the world. You just don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's exciting, right? Like th- there is no ceiling, like you said earlier, like there's the sky is truly the limit and we can create whatever reality we want to create for ourselves. Absolutely. Bob Proctor, my mentor, he always says, oh, I'm going to say my favorite quotes of his is the only limits in life are those we impose on ourselves. Yep. hundred percent. I love yeah. Bob Proctor. Uh, he, he absolutely changed my life. And like quick story, when you were talking about your publishing experience, um, you know, I was selling real estate full time and wanted to share my story of going through the divorce and other adversities that I had been through and decided to write a book. And I had approached some different publishers. And like you said, you know, you have to have a publishing agent and all these different things. And long story short, my first publishing deal, I ended up breaching my contract and saying, I don't want anything to do with this and losing a ton of money because I realized I was giving away my, I'm going to say my rights. And it was my story, but I was losing control over everything. And I refused to do that because it was my story. So I learned the self-publishing route. And when I ended up publishing my first book, Bob Proctor's wife, Linda, wrote the foreword for that book. Wow. And um, I ended up writing, self-publishing four books after that. And in the process, realizing, especially as women, how important our stories are. And, you know, it's one reason why I even do this podcast, but being able to help other women to amplify their voice. Yep. What advice would you give to a woman that is presently on the fence considering you know she's thinking about publishing a book um and maybe doesn't feel that her story um is enough because i hear that as an excuse very often yeah i hear that i actually heard that from publishers about my story and you know i was told i wasn't i was a good writer but i wasn't a great writer told my story wasn't unique enough which is so funny to me because clearly it's <laughs> <laughs> clearly it was enough right so use you know, use me as an example, you know, use you as an example, like look to other women who are just doing it. You know, I love the mantra done is better than perfect Mm because we will never be perfect. It will never look good enough to you because we are just our harshest critics. But if you get it out there and you put it out there, you never know who it's going to impact and who it's going to affect. I mean, the 
stories that I've received from women who have read my books who have told me like, you're the reason I didn't kill myself. Mm-hmm. You're the reason I'm still here. I, I receive messages all the time from women in Iran and actually recently from women in Afghanistan. And we all know what's going on over there. And it's just so heartbreaking. And there was a woman who translated my book um, over in Afghanistan. And she put it in the libraries and shared it with people. And, you know, she's like, it's so horrible right now what's happening, but your words are like getting me through. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's just like from a book that I wrote and published in my little Brooklyn apartment and my dining room table, you know, years and years ago, like, so you really don't know where your words are going to land. You don't know who they're going to impact. And I think we have to put our egos aside and get out of our own way a little bit and just mm-hmm. do it and just trust and know. And also your first book may not be the book. You know, mm-hmm. I've written nine now. It's taken me a long time. It wasn't until my fourth book that I was even on the map at all. Mm-hmm. So be patient with yourself, but you've got to start somewhere and then you can always build on that. And that is truly how you create a legacy, right? Just by continuing to show up and build on the foundation that you've set for yourself. Absolutely. And I love that. Like what you said, you know, the publishers didn't feel that your story was unique enough or whatever it is that they said, like, and that's the beauty of self-publishing. Like you don't need the validation of a publisher. Nope. Like (laughs) there's something in every single one of our stories that we can connect with and resonate with. That is the beauty in our stories. You know, we, all the women that we speak with or hear their stories or, you know, that have been on my podcast or your podcast or whatever, anywhere sharing their story, there is always something within that woman's story that we can resonate with and, and connect to. We, all of our stories matter. A hundred percent. There's, there's room for everyone. You know, there's room for everyone. There is enough success to go around just because there's a book out there that made it or, you know, that's number one or hot right now. I mean, I've been through it all. I've been watching all the number one books for years and years (laughs) and they come and they go, but there's always space for you, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's billions of people in this world. No one is ever going to walk in your shoes, not to make a pun on the title of your show, but like nobody will ever walk in your shoes. Nobody will ever know your journey and your story. So, you know, lean on that and be as true to yourself as you can be. I think that's one thing that I see with a lot of my clients who are writing books. They hold back. Mm -hmm. They kind of dim their light or they they hold back their truth a little bit. And I'm like, no, your truth is what's going to make that book incredible. Like that's what's going to really, if you can really dig deep and be willing to share and be vulnerable, that's what people are going to connect with. Absolutely. Listening to everything that you've shared today and even reading your books, like I see certain qualities within you. Um, obviously, that they're absolutely amazing, but I would love to know what you yourself believe that your superpower is. Oh, that's a good one. I don't know. Um, I feel like I have a few. I think seeing something in another human being that they don't yet see within themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I love coaching so much because I'm able to look at someone and be like, oh, this is exactly what makes you so special. This is exactly what you should be doing. Or here's mm-hmm. a, a good idea. Like, did you ever think of it this way? And like, not telling them what to do, but like helping them be more of who they are. Absolutely. I think, yeah. I love it. So what inspires you the most about what you do? Seeing someone's transformation and watching someone find that fire within them and find the confidence to really put themselves out there and live a life that's true to themselves. You know what? Like I had a woman in one of my masterminds last year and she was working her full-time job. She had a side hustle. And like by the third call, she quit. She gave her notice, Mm. you know, and like watching someone take that leap. And like, I always call it like kind of being in the front seat, you know, like and getting, getting to watch them 
do that for themselves. It's not me. I didn't quit her job for her, but like I was able to instill something in her that helped her believe in herself. So really seeing that transformation and, you know, I always say if everybody in this world did what made them happy, like, I don't think we would have wars. I don't think we would have hate, you know, we wouldn't have all the things that like sadly kind of tear us apart. I think people deep rooted unhappiness in a lot of people. So watching someone really find their fire and go out there and have the courage to make it happen. That's like, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. Mm-hmm. Speaking of happiness, like when and where are you the happiest? Oh, that's another great question. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely when I'm listening to music, when I'm laughing, when I'm with people that I know really love me and I really love them, you know, just like being around the people that you can trust. It's like the little moments. It really doesn't take a lot to make me happy. I think just Sometimes just like listening to music in the car, like driving somewhere, like with a good cup of coffee, like that's enough for me. It's like I really learned that it's the simple things. Like it's when I first had some level of success, like I bought all the stuff, you know, I went to all the fancy places. I, and I, I mean, I love nice things, don't get me wrong, but you know, you're not going to find like deep, deep happiness in a Chanel bag. You're going to find it like laying in bed with like the person you love, like making jokes, you know, like just with nothing to do that day, all the time in the world and space in your schedule. Like those are the moments for me that really matter. Absolutely. And, you know, I love that you said it's the simple things because sometimes when we are in our low points or when we've just become complacent, complacent in life, we have these assumptions that if we had you know, whatever is on our list. If we had such and such and such, we would be happy. And it's not in the material things. Like everyone that I've ever spoken to that has had any level of success has always been happiest with the simple things. Naturally, as as people, you know, we we crave peace and joy and freedom and, you know, connection, but that's that's not connected to the material thing. So there are people who don't have those things, but their assumption is that it's in the big, you know, financial things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I did a podcast episode recently where we were talking about both uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all these billionaires, I think even Steve Jobs and their wives left them. And I'm thinking there's no amount of money in the world that is going to bring you happiness. Like it's a, it's a yeah. simple things. <laughs> It's so true. It's really true. And I think that's a gift, right? Like being able to see the happiness in the little things, that's a gift. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that's a weakness, but I I think it's one of like, to me, that's everything in life. It's in being able to appreciate the little things that we are given greater things to be grateful for. But I could do the simple equation with my kids and, you know, maybe not even completely relates, but it's like, if you can't appreciate $10, how are you going to appreciate a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand? Like it's, it's the smaller things that you have to learn to value to be able to manage the bigger things. But I think this message also really um, connects to women who are starting out in their business, creating content, showing online. You know, I can't tell you how many of my clients are like, I don't have enough followers or I'm not getting enough likes. And, you know, only 10 people signed up for my program. And I'm like, you've got to treat those 10 people like they're 10,000 people. You know, you've got to treat those 50 followers like they're 50 million followers. Like, don't be so hungry for more that you forget what's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a a big thing too, because especially in, you know, with the growth of social media and people depending on it to grow businesses and do things, people feel like if they don't have a particular follower account that they can't do certain things, but you can have a small community and have a 
greater impact with those people, deeper connections with those people and more of an influence with those people. I think there was a, a story a while back, I don't remember how long ago, but there was an influencer that had, I don't know, know, millions of followers and she couldn't even get one person to show up to, you know, an event or something. And it's like, it's not about, you know, the number of followers. It's, it's about the impact that you're making. Exactly. I just had a big launch for one of my courses. Um, like I probably over like the last two to three weeks I was promoting it and I was watching. So it was really interesting. I just like to watch my analytics, not for any reason, but just to be able to use it to illustrate a point. Mm-hmm. And at one point when I was like closing out the course, you know, I had lost like a hundred followers. Like my Instagram was down by a hundred people or something like that. And I looked at my course and I realized like in two weeks I had made what it, I used to make in a year at mm-hmm. MTV. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to like share that story with as many women as possible because I'm down a hundred followers, but I've made almost like a hundred thousand dollars in a launch. <laughs> like, you know, that's absolute insanity. And I think yeah. if people heard that more, they would realize that like your engagement, your social media following has no impact on your income at all. Yeah. Like it's it is not necessarily a numbers game because you could have, like you said, a million people following you, but no one really cares. They're really not paying attention. Yeah. So yeah, focus on just fo- focus on serving the people in front of you, the people that want to be there. I think it's also kind of disrespectful, right? When people are like, Well, I need more, more, more. Well, what about the people that are showing up every day and they're yes. they're buying your courses or they're liking your posts or they're on your newsletter list? Like don't discredit them. Like give them the credit they deserve for being there. Be grateful that they're there and and serve them because there's a lot of places people can go online right now. Mm -hmm. So if you've got some people in front of you who want to hear what you have to say, like you're further ahead than most. And I think people forget that those numbers are people. Yes, there's, you know, bots included and what have you, but those numbers are people. Like I've had clients that have complained to me, you know, they're doing a a consultation on on podcasts. I'm like, oh, well, I only have, you know, 50 lessons per episode. And I'm like, okay, so if you had 50 people that sat in front of you every single week to hear you speak, and they came every single week to hear you speak, would you not value those people? Would you not do your best to bring you know, the most amount of value that you can to those 50 people? Or would you be like, you know what, you people don't matter because I need 100,000 people sitting in front of me every week. You know, we forget that those, those, those numbers are actually people. Yes, right. The visualization helps so much. It's, it's, it's so important to kind of picture that, you know, I always think of that too, like, especially when you get into like bigger numbers, if you've got like 100,000 people following you, like, that's like, you know, stadiums and stadiums were the people. Mm, that's, That's a big deal you know, (laughs) my, my, my middle child, she's 20 years old and she's social media famous. I I try not to say her at name on here because I'm like, she's a bit of a rebel, but um, her, (laughs) her, her TikTok, she's like over 1.3 million and she's a half a million on Instagram. Wow. And I have to remind her sometimes like, yes, it is just a number, but it's, those are people. It's a big freaking deal. Like everything that you say or you post it affects people. That's a lot of people. That is. And it's a responsibility that comes with that, right? Like we've, it's, I always think that too, like with people who have huge followings or celebrities, I'm like, that is a major responsibility, like not to be taken lightly because people really do look up to people online, especially the younger generation. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, before we go to the final segment of the show, I want you to tell people where they could stay connected with you online to get more from you. Sure. So my podcast is called Style Your Mind. 
My website is thechampagnesiod.com. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, that's probably the best way to stay connected to me because you'll get everything, you know, hand delivered to you, all the updates, the fun stuff, exclusives, invites, book launches. Um, and then on Instagram, I am at the champagne diet. Perfect. So I will di- like definitely have the direct links for people to click in the details section so they can connect with you and they don't have to search too far. Awesome. Thank you for that. No problem. Okay. So the final segment of the show, I call it a walk in her wisdom. And it's just a quick couple of reflection questions. And you share the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. It can be either one word or one sentence. Name a book that has changed or greatly impacted your life. The Secret. Mm, perfect. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Oh, these are hard hitting questions. <laughs> <laughs> a billboard that could say anything. I, I don't know. I would have to say something about, I think, just being like kindness. That keeps coming up for me. Mm-hmm. Something okay. about kindness, yeah. What new belief, behavior, or habit has improved your life in the last five years? Oh, definitely working out. Fitness, for sure. Taking care of my body, moving my body, especially getting older. Awesome. Uh, Name one of the most worthwhile investments that you've ever made. And that could be of money, time, energy. My new relationship. Mm, Love it. Love it. Okay. And last but not least, what do you wish women would do more of? Wish they'd be easier on themselves. Mm hmm. Totally, totally agree. Yeah. Don't be so hard on yourself. Just give yourself more grace. Thank you so much, Car, for taking the time to join us, for sharing your story. Honestly, I truly appreciate you. Like I said, I've been following you since 2015, and I love watching your evolution, and I love watching how you continue to share and connect with other women. So I'm just grateful that I had this opportunity to have this conversation with you. So thank you. Thank you so much. This was amazing. You are amazing, and I seriously appreciate you having me on the show and sharing me with your beautiful audience. (laughs) Thank you so much. To all you legacy leavers out there, until next time, subscribe on all platforms. Don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And thanks to those of you who continue to listen each and every week that have helped the show globally rank in the top 1.5% most popular show out of all podcasts. Join the community of legacy leavers and sign up for our weekly newsletter at awalkinmystilettos.com. And don't forget to grab one of my personal development books available online everywhere. And if you could think of one person that would receive value from hearing Cara's story, please share it with them. Feel free to screenshot this week's episode and you can tag us on Instagram. You can tag Cara at The Champagne Diet and you can tag myself at The Real McKinney Smith. Continue to walk in greatness in your stilettos in a manner worthy of your calling.